go home, write down everything you can do to get them to comply, and then burn it. And now, now, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah now figure out how to lead. Here's the other trick to that, right? It's not a trick, though. It's a pitfall because it, for a leader to actually do that, he's got to have the confidence in himself as a leader. Yes. And uh, 322 for throwing fire. Imagine if every moment of every day was unscheduled, unknown, and uncertain. Where you had to choose between your life and the life of another. Where you were deployed somewhere in the world to face an unknown threat and an unseen enemy. This is the podcast designed to serve those who serve us. So join me as we unpack and uncover why we do what we do when we do it from life's most extreme moments. I'm your host, Jeff Fanman, and this is Mindset Radio. Today, we are super honored and totally blessed to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Paul Tulin. This guy, in my mind, is like the Special Forces, Special Forces guy. Like he could have starred in the movie Green Berets. Paul has been awarded three bronze stars for his service. He's operated in a number of capacities across the operational environments, including Afghanistan and Syria. He's currently serving as the Chief of Operations at the 1st Special Forces Command over Fort Bragg and was a primary force in unlocking and articulating General Cleveland's vision for the Army Special Operations Forces during his time with the Commander's Initiatives Group, which is where I met Paul. Paul, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I don't know who wrote that uh, bio, but the guy was clearly a genius and in love with me. So. <laughs> Seriously. One hundred percent. Well, man, I mean, you are. Listen, I'm just going to start off by this. Like if you and I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes. But if you have not watched Paul Tulin's delivery of kind of this vision and our soft next and the traits of a soft warrior, you're missing something. Because, you know, when you're the guy that names love as a key attribute of a special operations warrior, you know, I feel like you've done something like that's a benchmark in life right there. Well, that and, and don't think that that didn't meet with resistance. Right. Because, oh. you know, we grappled with I grappled with it was it took me six months to kind of to kind of land there. Um, and, uh, you know, every time that I you know, when I finally got there and I started describing this this notion i always got the same answer you know what i mean they're like well you'd ask the toughest hardest most bullet ridden green berets in the formation and there are a bunch and uh, they would always say well yeah you know i mean it's about love but you can't really say that you know they'd always you know they always say <laughs> they'd agree with you but tacitly but kind of admit that you couldn't really say it but they couldn't give you a reason why they couldn't say it and right. every time jeff and i think i probably talk about this in the presentation. It's been a long time since I gave it. Uh, but every time they would invariably come back and say, well, I mean, you know, I, I love my guys, but you know, they, even at their most reluctant, they couldn't avoid even saying it themselves. And so, yeah, it took us, it, it, it took a lot of exploration, you know, talking to a lot of very unique people with unique insights to kind of come to an understanding that one of the things that special operations operators possess is this unique is this intent this capacity for love that's unique in its intensity um and again it's one of those things you can't measure it it's hard to screen for it 
but by either design or default, we end up finding people that have it and they fill our ranks. Is it everybody? No, not everybody. We, we have too many people to get it perfect, but sure. by and large, it's, it's most of us. Um, Man, I, so yeah. And it's true. Yeah. Listening, listening to you deliver that, that morning, you know, I sat back and I'm like, yeah, I, I get the best hugs from other dudes in the community. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, like it's true when I, you know, if I'm hanging out or I see somebody I haven't seen for a while or, uh, you know, we're heading out somewhere like there's no, it's like, it's not like hey handshake. Thanks for, thanks for coming. No, man. It's like a full on embrace. Like, Hey brother, I love you. And I think that comes also from, you know, now what are we dealing with? 20 years of, I may not see you again. And, you know, this kind of, I, I think it exists. It's this unbridled love for each other and care at such a deep level. And you're right. It's the hard thing to say out loud. And, uh, and it transcends relationships between people dude, too, which is yeah. why it's so unique, right? They have this, they have this unique intensity and love for their country, for the mission, mm -hmm. for each other for their families. You know, it's just a whole nether level of commitment. And how is that truly manifested? And how do you capture that in, in an essence or a word? And I couldn't find anything else. And I, you know, I kind of credit, um, my friend, Josh Walker, you probably remember, remember Josh. Yeah. Um, he's still in, he's a Colonel now. I, I mean, I, I, I just to put a finer point on it. I was just about to say, I mean, I love the guy, but there you go. Right. So, but I kind of credit Josh right. when I was said, and I, and I, and I, kind of came out with the word and he was like, oh yeah, like agape love, like the Greeks, you know, and he kind of helped me refine it a little bit and figure it out and realize that it wasn't just this brand new, fuzzy kind of emotional notion. It was, you know, something that not only we've identified that we possess, but it's, but it's got some history and it's got some deep philosophical understanding, but it doesn't apply to everybody. Right. Right. No. And it's, you know, and, and I actually, you know, having the unique experience, having kind of worked across multiple areas from the fire service military, and then the breadth of people I got to interact with my time with the agency, you know, it is true that in this level of kind of high performing people and, and teams that are willing to put themselves at risk, there's a love, there's a love for the community, a love for the country, a love for each other. It, it, it is. And it's it can be pretty pervasive. And, you know, if you allow it. And then I also think that kind of also unlocks a new like a new level at which we operate then. Right. It actually elevates us when we let that be when we're OK with it. It lets us kind of operate at a higher level than we expected, and, you know, to operate at that level. To do the things that we do, I mean, that I did when I was a young man, you know, at 51, my days of high adventure are comfortably behind <laughs> me. But, you know, to do the things that, that we do and to do the things that we ask our young guys to do, man, you have to love it. Like, I don't care what it is. A lot of people will, you know, will chalk it up to grit and determination. And that's definitely part of it. But mm -hmm. I remember when I went through selection, special forces assessment and selection in 1998, I remember being in the... We called it the the million dollar shitter, right? Because it was this building that reportedly had been built for a million dollars, and it was just a disaster of a bathroom. Like everything right. was broken, and you know, typical field kind of conditions. But anyway, I remember being in there. I had had fire guard because normally you'd be sleeping in the few hours that you had, and so I stole off after my fire guard to take a shower because it was the only way you could get a hot shower. And Jeff, I was in there, and I started like spitting up blood. I was like coughing up blood. And I'm like, oh man. Well, that sucks. And then I just yeah. kept going. You know what I mean? Like I didn't go to me. And if you don't love it, 
Yeah, you got to be tough. Look, I'm not, I'm not, we have some, some guys that are literally like Herculean physical pictures and, and presence of men. They're just giants of men, um, you know, world-class athletes. I've never been one of those guys, right? But I've been, I've always been durable. Like I can, you know, I, I got a lot of tread. Um, but if you don't, if you don't love it, it's, you're not going to be able to do it. Man, I totally agree with that. 100%. Let me, let me ask you something. I want to dive a little bit into kind of the leadership conversation with you, right? Because you've had some really unique opportunities kind of across a variety of components. From a leader's perspective, how do you, how do you begin to nurture those traits in, in your people? Yeah. So, I mean, well, I mean, I have had a lot of leadership positions, but I tell, you know, all my now as a battalion commander, a special forces line battalion commander. And I always tell guys when they get picked up for battalion command, you know, the army is going to tell them how, you know, how great they are, how amazing they are. I'm like, yeah, congratulations. You've achieved that, which only thousands of other people have achieved before you. So I try to, I try right. to, yeah, I try to level them a little bit. Um, but so, so what I have learned over a lot of iterations, which many, uh, you know, a lot of them included mistakes is that, the only way that, you know, it, it is, it is intrinsically part of a special operator to have that characteristic, right? So it's already there to nurture it. You have to do what I think is the fundamental basis of all good leadership is you have to care about them. Like you have to demonstrate that you actually care for them. My, my leadership philosophy has always been take care of people and everything else will take care of itself. The mission, organizational excellence, unit longevity, retention, all that stuff. If people truly believe you care about them, then they will, you know, then they will achieve. Uh, and so for me to nurture that, how, how can I, how can I put it, you know, to, to get it, you got to give it right. And, and I think sometimes leaders are reluctant to demonstrate that they care about people in that way because they have grown up in an environment that's all about results and everything is about the results and, you know, people to some degree are expendable. And I have never found that to be a productive or sustainable leadership model. Um, and I, you know, a little bit of a tangent here too. Uh, now that I'm older, I find that the proof that I look for to test whether or not the philosophy I've had over the last several decades is I, I tell guys, look, at the end of the day, um, when you look back on your life, the your officer record brief is not going to matter. The awards that they gave you won't matter. The rank that you achieve, insignificant. And the amount of money you banked doesn't matter either. What will matter, the metric that you can, that you can reconcile your life and career against are how many people from your past come back to you and ask for advice or assistance, or a recommendation, or just to share good news, or to come to you when they've had bad news. That's the metric that matters, and you get that by truly caring about people, and you know you've truly cared about them, and they knew it when they come back into your life later. Yeah, 100%. I completely agree with that. Just, well, just that, you know, the, the way that you'll know that people knew you cared about them is you'll see them come back into your life, Right. Yeah. Um, and honestly, you know, uh, okay, uh, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit. I don't have the I don't have the data, but um, I, I would say 
not certainly not a week goes by that I don't hear from a person from my past, usually a young person who's, you know, looking for looking for some some kind of assistance, either advice because they're getting ready to transition or um, you know, s- questions about a potential new position they're going in or a recommendation or just they shoot me a note because they had a baby, which is always, you know, you want to talk about operational mindset stuff. Um, I have, I have come to the conclusion that I am so enamored with the, with young families and new babies because A, I missed most of uh, yeah. my own. And I didn't, don't get me wrong, I was here for both the births, but I totally. definitely missed both the pregnancies, the, you know, the long term stuff. Um, so I missed most of it. And then, uh, also I've seen so many young families torn asunder again, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent my, you, you know, what I've done in my life. I've never been, I've never been in a knockdown drag out my buddies dying at my left and right firefight. Um, yep. I've put many, many, many young men onto planes, but not my best friends. Uh, but, but I think that's part of it, you know, and it's funny because when you, go through life, I think, you know, I'm a little older than you are, but, you know, I think we're both in that sweet spot of, you know, experience and wisdom. Like Mm, my body, mm -hmm. you know, my body definitely has peaked. That's, that happened a while ago. But I think (laughs) my, my emotional intelligence and my, you know, my, um, my social intelligence and just my, my, my objective logic, I think is kind of at a a sweet spot now where I'm very open-minded to things I can talk about. And, and, and I'm very open-minded to thinking about what's going on in my own head um, and trying to understand it. And, and you know, a lot of times the things that we've kind of ignored or just haven't even recognized, I'm starting to see them now. And they're not, they're not crippling and they're right. not, um, you know, they're not, uh, they, they, they haven't haunted me. But, uh, you know, it's part of who you are and it's, I think, shaped by the, the rather – uh, difficult experiences that, that we've had. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that's where, you know, over these years, I've kind of gone through this, this phase of looking at a lot of that stuff. And I like how you say that, you know, at this stage, cause you're right, you know, that, that level of emotional intelligence starts to kind of take hold. Like you get somewhere, you know, you get past the 15 year mark or so, you know, you get almost to the 20 year mark and you're looking around going, Wow what did I learn from all this shit I just did for the last 20 years, you know? And, you know, and then you start kind of reflecting back. And I think that does come up at any point in time. Like you talk about anytime we're approaching a major transition uh, in life, you know, things like that can come up a lot of times, you know, if you're a young guy getting ready to get promoted, you kind of have that moment where I look back and it's like, okay, did I do my job effectively there? Am I going to make the next rank? Am I going to, move into the next position and then again and again and again and then when we come time to transition out of this life that we've had forever it's like whoa let me look back and see what's all there and you know you're right i i'm i I feel super blessed uh in a lot of ways having had little man you know i mean having to get to be a dad again at this age kind of post that world uh with everything that I've learned, right. With this new place. Cause I look at him and I'm like, dude, you're, you're amazing. You know, you are an amazing human being. Uh, 
in so many ways. And, you know, and I wasn't around for a lot of the girls, you know, I was deployed and back and forth and, and out in the world doing other stuff. So yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. I mean, if hopefully it gives people who go through it a, um, an appreciation of what, you know, what they do have. I think the appreciation we have for everything in our life, for many of us, for not for all of us, but for many of us are, is pretty acute because we know what it's like to not have it. Um, however, you know, we were talking about this before we got started, before the podcast. Um, you know, there's some, there's some, there's some real risk in over identifying in all of that, in your experience, yes. your career, who you are as a, you know, as a soldier, for me as a Green Beret or for any soft operator, there's a lot of risk in that because, um, I, I, you know, when I would counsel, when I would counsel young captains, I'd always tell them, Hey, look, you know, I'd go through this whole big laundry list of things that I expected from them and they can expect from me. And at the end, it was always the same thing. The bottom line was what I really expected from them was to take care of their men and to take care of themselves. Because someday, you know, if they, they'd give the army plus or minus 20 years, right? If they're, you know, if they're lucky, they'll give their family the rest of their life. And so I would tell them, no matter who you are, I don't care who you are. If you do every command position, the army has to offer you from platoon leader, all the way up to chief of staff of the army. At some point you are going to hang this thing up. It is an inevitability like death. You cannot escape it. Right. (laughs) Right. So, so you've got to, so you've got to understand that, but you got to understand it now. Don't try to understand it the day you hang it up. And so I would tell them, invest your time wisely, right? Your family is not going to look back on your career and say, oh, you know what? My dad was a, you know, was a really good Green Beret. And, and your wife's not going to say, oh, my, my husband got promoted below the zone, which for the non-military in the audience, that means gets promoted early. They're not going to say that right, shit. Right. What they're going to say is my father was a good dad. Yeah. Or they're going to, your wife's going to say, if you're lucky, my husband was a good man. So I always tell them, invest your time wisely. And, and I would encourage them to take risks with their career to allow others to invest their time wisely. And what I meant by that was, you know, some guys will get it in their mind that especially we're on, you know, you, you deal a lot with high performance teams. So in that moment, when they're on that team, it's a pretty finite amount of time Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Um, one is that people can't sustain it for that long, but also because of career progression and so on. Um, but I was always telling them, look, take risks with your career because you think you have to perform and be perfect all the time. And that requires the input and the output of everybody on the team at all times. You don't do that. Take a risk and understand that it'd be okay if you guys don't do X, Y, and Z because you let one guy go off and, you know, go to the game or go to the dance or go to the recital. There is no one person that we can't afford to lose during a duty day for a couple hours because we're gone far too long for that right. or far too often for that. But that takes, but that takes an understand. You've got to take some risk with your career. You know what I mean? You've got to, you've got to say, okay, I'm going to send that guy off today. Uh, and young guys aren't prepared to do that because nobody tells them that they should. Right. And that, um, that it's okay. You know, right. That, that, right. that, yeah, that they, being, being that way uh, is, is actually okay because you have to, and you get more, I think you get more out of your people in a lot of ways when you're willing to take those risks, when you're re- willing to stand for them and their life, not just who they are as a soldier or a police officer or a firefighter or whatever it might be. Like when you're actually willing to stand for their life, 
um, and what is important to them. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, and I think there's only one way to get teams like that to really work at their optimum, and that is by truly empowering them and truly trusting them, right? So I have a, uh, I have this, that's probably, I'm probably plagiarizing this from somewhere, but I, I've never <laughs> seen true. it elsewhere, but there are, there are no original we'll, we'll ideas. Credit, right? We'll but credit anyway, it with you. We'll credit it for you, sure. Paul. I have this, I have this theory of opera of, uh, organizational performance, right? And it is that, you know, anytime you want to accomplish a thing in an organization, whatever it is, you're going to have to overcome some kind of resistance. Now that resistance could be passive resistance, which just means I just got to get the word out, you know, right. Or it could be active resistance like, oh, man, no one's going to want to do this. Um, and you can get over resistance and get compliance with control. Uh, you can apply you know, policy, regulations. Mm -hmm. My authority to tell you what to do will get you compliance. But here's the problem with that. Um, if, I, if I quit, I get fired, I get hit by a bus, whatever it is, then there's no consistency to that compliance. So the trick is to move past resistance through compliance to commitment. Yeah. And the only way you get commitment is to counterintuitively relinquish control. Mm. And you can <laughs> only do that. You can only do that if you genuinely trust people and they know that you trust them. And I had always had two litmus tests to make sure I was giving enough people trust. I was giving people the trust that they needed. One, I'd feel it in my gut, Jeff. So yeah. in other words, I would look at a situation and I would be on the razor's edge of jumping in and taking control because it was just really eating me up. And I and I want and I'd be like, okay, step back. You, you've given them the right amount of room. They, they, you've given them the right amount of trust. And the other litmus test was um, the presence or absence of empowerment failures. And what I mean by that was, if I had a lot of people coming to me and asking my permission to do things, then that was an empowerment failure because what I had failed to do was give them the proper guidance, given them enough intent and let them feel enough trust to do it on their own or to at least tell me, hey, this is what I'm going to do without asking my permission. So I always use those two things as a litmus test, but you cannot achieve true commitment. And in order for high performance teams to perform at their peak, they have to be committed and they have to, and there's only one way to do it. And that's through trust yeah. and relinquishing control. Yeah, 100%. You know, I had a young captain in the firehouse come to me one time and was really struggling with, uh, leadership was really struggling with his crew and uh, a variety of aspects was just having kind of nuance problems, right? Just a run of the mill crap that goes on, but, but definitely yep. was not like in, what, like garden variety. Like, yeah, like, like you know, guys were just coming in with bad attitudes. Maybe guys were a little bit late. Uniforms weren't taken care of. They weren't checking out the rigs. They weren't like, you know, holding the standard. They weren't operating at the standard yep. that, that he wanted to operate at. Uh, I'd experienced the same stuff. You know, they're kind of just, they're not really invested in their own training and their own development. You know, they're just like, okay, so I'm here at the firehouse today and, you know, great, I'm here. You know, and and he's like, how do I, you know, what do I do here? Do I, do I start suspending people? Do I start getting them time off? Do I da, 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 da? And he starts going through all the compliance stuff, right? I love the way you say that. Yep. And I said, man, I said, because because I would say, and I think I've shared this in the past, I think you've heard me talk about it, like this, the biggest failure of leadership I had was in the fire service, the whole nother time, whole nother conversation. But, uh, but I looked at him and I said, I said, man, here's kind of the rule I follow. Go home, write down everything you can do to get them to comply, right? Pull out the SOPs, pull out the department procedures, pull everything else out, everything you can leverage against them, every action, everything you can do, write it all down. 
and then burn it. And now, yeah, now, yeah. Now, yeah now figure out how to lead, right? Because I think that's the that's the place. It's like when you're trying to lead by compliance without, you know, there it 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 actually removes that trust, right? Because so here's the so I'm no, sorry. No. So so here's the other here's the other trick to that, right? It's not a trick though. It's a pitfall because it, for a leader to actually do that, he's got to have the confidence in himself as a leader. Yes. And and I've and I've seen that I've seen that in the private sector a lot. So I, I am always shocked and disappointed by the lack of leadership in the private sector. Which is not to say that the military is perfect. God knows we are not. Um, but I, I and I see it, and almost always that it's a manifestation of a lack of confidence because in order to lead in that way, to lead with trust by caring for people and letting and getting, you know, give them guidance and direction and get the hell out of their way. To do that, you have to be confident in yourself and it has to be okay for them to be better at something than you are. And, <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you're not, then you're always going to be trying to either take the credit for yourself. Like, like uh, I heard the other day this great quote. I'm going to misquote it a little bit, but the, I'll get the essence of it from Confucius. I'm no, I'm no Zen Buddhist, but um, and he said, "Every man has two lives: uh, the life he lives, and then the second one when he realizes he only has one life." And so, with leadership, you know, I translate that in kind of a similar way. A leader becomes truly powerful. The moment he realizes leadership is about enabling the success of others. And it's okay. Look, if you think for a minute as a leader, people are going to look at you and they're expecting you to know everything, you're a fool. Yeah. I don't care who you are. I don't care how smart you are. Give me a room full of people from private to general. And every one of those people is going to know something more than any of those other people. It's just you, you cannot master every domain. It's an impossibility. And it's foolhardy. It's a fool's errand. And so I think a lot of leaders who fail, fail because they are not comfortable with themselves. They don't have the confidence to say, oh, you're better at that, that than I am. Great. I'm going to put you against that project. Perfect. Because we, you know, there's some, what is the, what is the old acronym or the old cliche about, you know, every a rising, all ships on a rising tide and everybody kind of rises up together. All right. Um, and that's, that's true, yeah. right? I mean, if you, if you, that should be your goal as a leader is to enable their success so they can achieve more than you ever did. And the moment you realize that, oh, you become a powerful leader in my opinion. Well, and I think, and I think even, even more importantly, you hit a, you hit a key word there. And that's kind of when I, you know, when I'm speaking with the leaders in various groups, my first question, and I love doing this because you kind of get a look on their face. It's a, the litmus test, right? To see where their, where their brain is. And you ask them point blank, you're like, okay, what do you do to enable your people? How do you enable your people? And really getting into understanding like what that looks like, like, like if you are not empowering them, okay, then what's the gap there? You know, they're not there to serve you or to serve up, like you're there in service of them and to empower them to be exceptional. So what is, what actions are you taking to do that? And how are you functioning at that place where, you know, you're driving this team forward. And I, and I think here's the thing, I think as a leader, sometimes we fall into this trap. Like you said, this is that breakdown of confidence. It says, 
my guys expect me to be better than them. And I think if there's anything we've learned from our times in some of the teams and uh, units and various components and roles that, you know, that people look at and they're like, oh, well, you know, you, you were there. There's really kind of an expectation there that, you know, I can't I can't be better. Like you just said, I can't be better than everybody on my team. Matter of fact, I don't want to be better than everybody on my team. I better be the dumbest guy in the room if I'm putting a team together to go do something crazy around the world because I want to enable them to be just wildly exceptional at what they you know, at who they are and what they do and how they do it, rather than putting something in place that says, okay, I'm in charge now. You know, and we're going to do it this way. I, I remember being in the Q course and being told um, something along those lines. You know, you had to be the fittest. You had to know how everything worked. And I'm, and I remember thinking, even then, I was like, man, I'm not going <laughs> to. That's not even possible. Who the fuck I'm are, like, you? What are you talking right. about? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, what? What is that? I don't. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. So, um, yeah, and I think you know. And you've had way more experience in this than I have, although I've had a lot lately. And I certainly get, you know, I get some interesting leadership insights from um, from my, you know, my wife who's in education, mm-hmm. and from my friends who are in technology and just commercial adventures. Um, and it is, you you don't think you wouldn't think it's as commonplace, but man, so many people in in leadership positions who are supposed to be there to help their subordinates succeed are like all about making themselves either look good or look like they, you know, they're the smartest person in the room or, and it's, and it's, and I say, I tell my wife all the time, I'm like, yeah, that's just, from what I can see, that's just a lack of confidence in their own leadership. Because the minute you let that go and you know, it's okay to, 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 to enable the success of others. I mean, you're very comfortable in letting people do the things that they're going to do because, and you trust them. Yeah, I see that a lot in, I see a lot in education. It's 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 kind of shocking how, um, you know, these incredibly competent and dedicated, oh my God, dedicated educators, um, who you know, w- without exception, take money out of their own pocket to make this thing work. We pay them peanuts, right? Right. Uh, like, if you can't trust that person to do their job, who who can you trust? Right. Like, just let them go. They they're there for no other reason than for the children especially in like elementary and middle school education, they're not there for the money. Christ, the money that they get, they give back. So they're clearly there for the benefit of the children. Let them go, man. And I see a lot of times they, they just don't. Um, and it's, uh, I think it goes back to that, you know, that they, they, well, they don't have any training. First of all, there's no leadership training in that field and some of those other fields. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, surprising how, how common that is, but it's also for us, you know, we have a lot of people who think that it's all about results and, you know, it's it's all about them. And well, yeah, and I mean, and, you know, and, this- and and listen, I mean, I'm the first one to step up and be like, hey, listen, are we producing results? You know, and but if you go back to it, if you start to actually look at the underpinning of things, uh, I think you start to find, you know, we look at like tactics and physically, did we do X, Y, and Z? And then if the answer is no, okay, we start to look at and explore why. And if we go deeper and deeper and deeper, I think what you you line down to these places where self-confidence wasn't there, the confidence in their decision making, the trust amongst their team, right? There was no freedom of action. It's pretty cool when you're able to watch people when you kind of be able to release them and stand back and actually watch their performance. 
you know, I know at times I've been in awe of my people, right? Away from me when oh, I, yeah. yeah, I've been oh, able yeah. to step back and look and be like, man, they're good. <laughs> you know? And, and oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's a magical feeling to me. That's when I feel like you've done something when you can, you know, release back from that and you're not in them, you know, nobody, nobody wants to be managed period. And matter of fact, so yeah, go. No. So two things, right. Don't let me forget about, I want to go back to culture real quick, but I, I, let me tell you a story about, um, about stepping back and just being absolutely blown away. So, um, when, uh, when we went into Syria in 2016, so I guess in 2015, uh, the president, authorized about 50 special operators to go into Syria. At the time, we were fighting ISIS primarily from Iraq. That was our main focus. Mm -hmm. But we knew that Syria was becoming a problem or that was where, you know, a lot of the fight was. Anyway, so in 2015, they authorized 15 special operations guys to go into into Syria. And they worked primarily um, trying to enable the Kurds, although, you know, in different areas, there were Arab tribes. And um, anyway, so what they realized very quickly was that the best counter ISIS tactical partner in the region was the Kurds in northern Syria. And so they had to get them trained and equipped and, you know, start building up that force. And the 50 guys that were there, they, they just couldn't do that. They were they had their hands full just helping them, you know, fight the fight. And so in 2016, they brought in a special forces uh, headquarters. And because of luck and timing, it, it was my headquarters. So I was the first special forces battalion headquarters in Syria. And I brought, I kept it really lean. I only brought like 40 people from the headquarters and about five teams. And anyway, uh, while we were there, the, the, the Kurdish, the, they called them the Syrian democratic forces. Um, they, uh, the SDF, they liberated the town of Manbij and Manbij was a mixed Kurdish Arab town on the, on the, uh, Western side of the Euphrates. And the SDF liberated it. And so it was a, it was an apocalypse, man. We went through there the day after they liberated it. And it was just like, you know, it was rubble and bodies and everything you could, well, most people can't imagine, right. but it was pretty horrific. Right. So, so anyway, so we go, so we go through and we, and, and then immediately in our face was the task of how do we, how do we hold on to this place? How do we, you know, how do we hold on to the gain that we've made here without it completely falling apart. I mean, the, the people there were actually pretty proactive and, and motivated to kind of start getting everything back together. But um, so long story short, I came up with a general idea of what we had to do. And I took one special forces team and one civil affairs team. And I said, hey, you go figure out how do we, you know, it wasn't this simple, obviously, but I'm paraphrasing go figure out how do we main, how do we maintain this thing now that we, how do we secure it? How do we yeah. hold on to what we've gained? And when I tell you that the, that the ideas that they came up with, that this young, it was a young special forces captain and his team and a young civil affairs captain and his three guys. When I tell you the, the creativity and the ingenuity and the, and you know, and just the, and just the, 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 I hesitate to use, you know, the moxie yeah. <laughs> of these guys. Just the things that they came up with were absolutely incredible. And I credit all of that. And 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 Mambidge survived and it was secured and they built a, a security for it. And they did all of this stuff and they and the civil affairs guys, you know, identified the kind of needs that and they that that were required and they connected the dots between, 
you know, non-government organizations and, and brought it on. It was miraculous to see. And all I had to do was give them some guidance and just get the hell out of their way. Right. Because th- that's what they're capable of. Yeah. I like to, I like to kind of frame it in a way that says, if you give an individual or teams the freedoms and authorities to act, it will be amazing at what they can accomplish. So listen real quick. I know you want to track back to culture. We're going to save that for Wednesday's episode because we're going to go a little bit deeper. We're going to talk about kind of some of the soft truths that have been created, how they apply into some other areas. Um, I want to talk a little bit deeper about the traits and we're going to continue this conversation on leadership because I'm loving it and I think we're getting a ton out of it. So Paul, I appreciate you joining us on this Monday. Do me a favor, stick around and we're going to go deep dive into Wednesday. So thanks for listening today. Paul's info and how to connect with them and how to find this crazy uh, guy running around in the world. We'll all be up on the, uh, we'll all be up in the show notes. It'll be available on mindset.com backslash mindset radio. So thanks for listening on this Monday morning episode. Pick us up on Wednesday. Paul and I'll be back at it. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today. Listen, this has been so much fun and I hope you're enjoying it and getting something out of it please do me a favor. Whatever your platform is, whatever the means is, just take a moment, pause, make sure you're subscribed, make sure you download all the episodes, and most importantly, give us a rating and review. Just your honest feedback. That's all I ask for. Just your straight, honest feedback on how we're doing and how you like the show. Those rating and reviews are like gold for us, and I would really appreciate it. You know, the podcast has grown dramatically, way bigger than I thought. We're now stretching over seven countries. So everybody out there across around the world really now actually listening to this, thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you're getting something out of it and we'll see you on Wednesday.